Live from the Dorothy Chandler Pavilion in Los Angeles, California, the 71st Annual Academy Awards. Welcome to a star-studded evening here at the Music Center. The stars are out tonight to celebrate the best of the best. It's Sunday night at the Oscars and the fans in the stands join those from around the world to cheer on their favorites. Ladies and gentlemen, live from Hollywood, California, welcome to the 59th bi-monthly When We Were Young podcast, brought to you by <laughs> Leftover Donuts, Too Much Coffee, and Cocaine. <laughs> <laughs> cocaine, the official sponsor of Hollywood. <laughs> This is the audiophonic extravaganza where we look back at the pop culture that defined a generation and see whether it holds up, does not hold up, or only holds up because Harvey Weinstein told us otherwise we'd never work in this town again. <laughs> I'm Chris, your podcast host, most likely to be FUBAR. I'm Becky, the podcast host, most likely to know something of a woman in a man's profession. Yes, by God, I do know about that. <laughs> And I am Seth, the co-host most likely to want to see a play called Romeo and Ethel, the Pirate's Daughter. Good title. <laughs> Great title. Great. Today, we are talking about the Oscars, aka the Academy Awards. Hollywood! <laughs> the word we know that it is Hollywood! <laughs> there, will, there will be musical numbers. <laughs> there will be. <laughs> it is annually the biggest night in showbiz, bringing out megawatt stars and fabulous outfits to celebrate the best and brightest in the year's cinema, and reward these feats of the silver screen with gold statuettes. It is the 20th anniversary of one of the most memorable Oscar nights of our youths. The night saving Private Ryan and Shakespeare in Love vied for Best Picture, resulting in an upset that some call one of the top travesties in Oscar history. So we will be revisiting both those movies to determine if that was... <laughs> the right call? <laughs> bad or good. <laughs> and I also want to determine exactly who's been calling it a travesty. <laughs> a lot of people on the internet. Yeah. And we'll also talk about that Academy Award telecast and how we felt about the Oscar when we were young. This is a topic we've been planning to do for a while, but it happens to be <laughs> a very uh, interesting year to talk about mm -hmm. the Academy Awards uh, because this year is bonkers. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know where we're at. Like, no host, host. Are they going to have any of the nominees on screen at any point? The Academy, of this, <laughs> the Academy Awards this year are like a plasma. They exist in a state of matter between solid and liquid, but neither... <laughs> They're Schrodinger's award show. <laughs> the Oscars have been kind of controversial, always a little bit, but like I would say in the last few years, like there's been a lot of scrutiny around like Oscars so white and things like that, that people have been very critical of the Academy. But this year, it's kind of been like nonstop from the time they tried to do a best popular film Oscar. Oh, and that was. I've already forgotten that happened. Yeah. A big, big thud. Uh, that, no one liked that. That announcement lasted, what was it, like two weeks? Mm -hmm. The mini scandals that the Academy Awards find themselves in seem to be taking on more and more significance and national attention, but also taking less and less time to come and go. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it is moving lightning fast. Like, I feel like the next one will be like literally a tweet or something and then immediately disappear and then everyone will immediately forget about it. Yeah, they have very notably had a big snafu with Kevin Hart hosting and then not hosting and then hosting and then Ellen wants him to host and then no one wants him to host and he's not hosting and there's no host. And then just the nominees themselves have been like super controversial this year as well. I mean, often there's like one movie that kind of like last year, Three Billboards, you know, kind of controversial about race. 
Um, but this year, it's like Bohemian Rhapsody has a controversy. Green Book has a controversy. Um, Black Panther had the popular film thing, and you know that a Marvel movie being nominated yeah. is kind of a controversy. To, uh, to the credit of, I guess, who got nominated, there are there are many. Uh, there are people of color. There's different types of movies mm-hmm. represented. There's gay people in some of the movies. There, you know what I mean. There, yeah. The nominees themselves seem to be wide ranging. So I don't think we have an Oscar so white problem this year. <laughs> it's more Oscar like so Oscar something. so bonkers. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here. Hashtag Oscar so bonkers. <laughs> So, yeah, I think it'll be really interesting to go back to what I look at as both, like, a weird Oscars year, um, the movies from 1998, but also kind of very emblematic of the Oscars, like, back then, and see how much (laughs) it has changed or not changed. (laughs) So before we get to talking about that, I just have a question for you guys. Who are you wearing? (laughs) Thank you for asking, Chris. I am wearing Gap <laughs> with Ooh. baby spit up as an accessory. I love it. It's so you. It brings out your eyes. Jewelry by no one. <laughs> Ooh, no one's so hot right now. Seth, who are you wearing? The skin of my enemies. <laughs> oh, I thought that looked familiar. <laughs> I almost went with the same gown. You can make your own. I can teach you. <laughs> This is not the Silence of the Lambs episode. Although that did win an Oscar. (laughs) Stay moisturized, everyone out there. With Jergens. Jergens, the official lotion of the Academy Awards. (laughs) The Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences was formed on May 11th, 1927, spearheaded by Louis B. Mayer, with the purpose of mediating labor disputes in the industry. The first roster had 230 members and bestowed its first honorary membership to Thomas Edison. (laughs) Of all people. It wasn't until the next year that awards of merit were handed out. In 1929, the Academy joined with USC to create America's first film school. And the first Oscars were held on May 16th, 1929, rewarding both an outstanding picture, the war movie Wings, and a unique and artistic picture, the romantic dramedy Sunrise. It lasted 15 minutes. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my god, can we please go back to those times? It was not broadcast and tickets were $5. (laughs) Winners were also announced three months ahead of time. So since then, (laughs) things have changed a bit. Oh, God. The Oscars have been known for bestowing Best Picture upon some of the most indisputably great motion pictures of all time, like Gone with the Wind, Casablanca, Lawrence of Arabia, The Godfather, Amadeus, Schindler's List, as well as not bestowing Best Picture to some of the most indisputably great motion pictures of all time, like The Wizard of Oz, Citizen Kane, Sunset Boulevard, The Graduate, Apocalypse Now, Raging Bull, Pulp Fiction, all movies that did not win Best Picture but were nominated. Although, with Gone with the Wind, that was the same year as Wizard of Oz, so only one could win. It's a tough race that year. It was. much like 1999. <laughs> so uh, I do have a real question for you guys. Uh, Seth, did you watch the Oscars when you were little? And Becky, did you ever not watch the Oscars <laughs> when you were little? Yeah, no, I kind of feel like I should have gotten Becky's question because I was trying to think about it. And when preparing for this podcast, I try not to have to rely on outside sources. <laughs> I can't remember when I started watching the Oscars. I know that I trailed off from watching the Oscars about seven years ago or so. Um, Mm. But I feel like I was watching the Oscars in the womb, uh, (laughs) in in vitro, uh, 
What were I, they showing in there? Was there a, a nice tap number? Mostly Clockwork Orange, but then the Oscars randomly. I don't know. I don't know. I watched it as a kid growing up, even when I didn't know what the movies were, but especially once I was old enough to recognize what movies were being honored. I never got too much into the actual competition of it. I was never the kind to like participate in like betting or competition to see who would win all the Oscars. But I would kind of, like, get excited about particular movies I liked that got nominated and, you know, get a little bit disappointed or whatever by movies that didn't, that I really liked. But I was never too, like, emotionally invested in it. Where do I begin? (laughs) Becky was too emotionally invested in it. Where do I begin? (laughs) (laughs) Becky's middle name is Oscar. Start with 1929, the first Academy Awards. Oh, I remember that year. The first time I remember watching the Oscars was um, the 94 Oscars for the 93 movies. Because I think I've said on this podcast, I remember watching being like, Jurassic Park, Jurassic Park. Like, I wanted that to win everything. And I didn't understand how the Oscars worked. Because I thought everything was announced during the telecast. I didn't understand that the nominees were all... It's like I thought when they were like, and the nominees are, they were like announcing them for the first time. (laughs) And everyone just happened to be there and was very surprised. And you get excited for two minutes and then you lose. (laughs) Well, I was 11 years old. (laughs) Uh, And I was very happy when uh, Jurassic Park won. When did Death Becomes Her come out? 92. Because then I was watching the Oscars then too. Mm, Because I remember watching when it won... And I really liked that movie then when I was little and it won best special effects. And I was like, yay, I like that movie. So at least, at least starting then. I would love to talk to little Becky about what she thought death becomes her was about. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It was just hijinks. Yeah. yeah. Potions and hijinks. (laughs) That was for the longest time. My only reference to Meryl Streep. I was like, Oh, Meryl Streep. She's that death becomes her actress. That can't be actress. I think you want to talk to fourth grader Becky who was watching Rocky horror picture show Every day. Of old Becky's, we need to have a conversation. <laughs> We're going to have a seance and summon all the old Beckys. We've got to bring them all in here. Oh, God. They've all got to be on the show. Give them all makeovers. <laughs> <laughs> um, so I was, I've been watching since then. I mean, I've liked movies my whole life, so it was exciting. I think I've been watching it my whole life. And it got to the point where through a certain year to a certain year of the Oscars, like I knew everybody that was nominated. Just I could just like say it off the top of my head. I'm like, in 1992, that one. And this person won Best Director and that one Best Actress. Would Um, you follow the scientific and technical Oscars? Yes. Really? I mean... Some, like special effects. Oh, okay. Not sound editing, sorry. <laughs> but so, Sorry, sound editors. Um, but special <laughs> effects, maybe editing, screenplay. I remember in 1996 when I was 13, that's around when I really got into film and I knew, like, I want to be in the film industry. And that was the year that they nominated a lot of indie movies. It was, well, let's see if I can remember. It was Jerry <laughs> Maguire was the only uh, non-indie the English Patient, Fargo, Secrets and Lies, and Shine. I got it. Um, <laughs> she still got it, everyone. <laughs> uh, and that was 19, 1996, and I saw every nominated movie, like, not just for Best Picture, but Actress, Actor, like, all the major awards. I saw them with my mom, and that was, like, a nice bonding thing that we did around that time. And those were some great movies. So we saw some great movies in the cinema, and that's when I got into independent cinema. So I think the Oscars helped me, funny enough, get into, like, independent cinema in a way, because they 
recognized these great movies that year. And that was like a great age for me to get into it. Yeah, at the time, like we wouldn't have had very much reference for indie movies unless they got that kind of publicity because mm-hmm. they were probably playing in like the city of Seattle where I'm from, but they weren't like playing at the local like multiplex. So like I would never have heard of a movie like Shine if it weren't for the Oscars and like the coverage mm-hmm. it got in Entertainment Weekly because it was nominated. And yeah, stuff. exactly. So over the years, I would like get books about the Oscars and I would see like who won every year and I would make it a point like, oh, I should see that movie. I should see that movie because that won Best Picture that year. And that's kind of where my interest in film started was saying like, oh, this won Best Picture in 1984. I've never heard of it, you know, and going from there. And I think that's why to me, the the Oscars are really significant. It's for archival purposes for people 50 years from now. They don't know any of these movies. <laughs> you know, maybe they've never heard of Moonlight, but they, but they watch it because it won Best Picture. People could forget at Bohemian Rhapsody in 50 years. We need the Oscars. <laughs> um, so for me, it's, for, for somebody at least who has an interest in film, they were really important to me, not just as one night to, you know, as an interesting thing to watch and look at dresses and hear speeches, but just as a starting place of where to go when you're starting your cinematic journey. Mm-hmm. And I still love the Oscars. I watch them every year. I've actually, in the past few years, something has happened to get in the way of me watching the Oscars, and I've been very upset. <laughs> Why are more people not dead? <laughs> like, <laughs> nothing could get me to not watch the Oscars. I don't care what well, it is. <laughs> I had, like, a bridal shower one year. I had a derby game one year. I had another year, I think I was, like, working late or something. I was just, like, I think it was last year. It was the first time in years that I was able to watch the Oscars live, and I was like, everyone get out of my life. Like, I'm gonna watch the Oscars. Don't bother me. <laughs> yeah, I feel like the Oscars were always on in my house, probably like every year. Not like every day, but <laughs> once per year. <laughs> no, you just watch the same ceremony Then they every would day. tape it. <laughs> Your parents would tape it and loop it. <laughs> Sometimes they feel like they're that long. No, I'm sure my mom was watching them because I don't have an awareness of like starting to watch them or a particular year, but there are movies like <laughs> Bugsy and Howard's End and Scent of a Woman that I, would, I have not seen and would probably have never heard of, except for that they were Oscar nominees and that... That gave my little, like, tiny brain, like, a reference for those movies that were not things that I was interested in at age eight or whatever. And I remember, I'm pretty sure I saw The Dances with Wolves year, and that's, like, really old, and I've never seen that movie. I totally remember that, too. Yeah, I just remember that movie sweeping, and probably that was the first time I'd heard of the movie, but I remember thinking, oh, wow, that's an important movie, because Mm -hmm. it's, like, winning all these awards. From there, every year I got more invested. I remember uh, 1994, when Steven Spielberg won, and I was glad, even though I hadn't seen Schindler's List at the time because I was a big Jurassic Park fan. It was like a spiritual win for Jurassic Park. And then by 1995, I'd actually seen some of the nominees like Forrest Gump and that one. And that was exciting because I was like part of the like (laughs) watching the movie. Ninety-six, you know, Babe and Apollo thirteen. So I slowly started seeing like more and more of the movies that were nominated for Best Picture in nineteen ninety-seven. It was Back to None because it was all those indie movies. I think the big like classic Oscar year for me is nineteen ninety-eight when Titanic won, and I think I saw all the Best Picture nominees. Yeah. I remember that being a poor year. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> that's the exact wording you used back then. <laughs> I find this to be a poor year, mm-hmm. Mother. <laughs> okay, we are not seancing that, Becky. But- <laughs> yeah, we're leaving her in the past. 
I just wanted to emphasize the kind of educational value that the Oscars had. Because, I mean, in one sense, I kind of got off of watching the Oscars because I, like, learned how political the decision-making was behind it. But in another sense, it kind of was natural for me to do that because I live in a place that's so film-driven anyway and where I'm going to be the first person to hear about new indie movies that are coming out, regardless of whether or not I watch the Oscars. But when I was a kid growing up in, like, southern-ass Louisiana, that really was the only place that I would hear about these movies that were indie movies or that were more kind of quote-unquote art movies. But there were not just a couple like art house theaters where the types of movies that would only get attention from the Oscars would show up. But then the knock-on effects of a movie getting Oscar nominations are that they would sometimes come back to theaters. They would sometimes get wider releases just around Oscar season. They would also show up in Blockbuster. We're going to stock this movie because it got all this Oscar attention. So it wasn't just like getting to learn about new movies. It was actually getting to see a lot more movies. Um, so yeah, like it, it, in retrospect, it was a big part of my film education too. Yeah. And I think it's easy. Like you say, we live in Los Angeles. We can talk to most people here about movies and they know what we're talking about. <laughs> we can say nothing and have <laughs> lots of new movies offered to us. Yeah. But like in talking to like my family back home or friends from back home who don't follow this kind of stuff, like it helps to have a reference because like I don't see a lot of like the biggest blockbusters that are out anymore because I'm not that interested in a lot of them. Like Dwayne Johnson movies, like I've not, not, have not, not the seen rock. Them. <laughs> you Dwayne didn't Johnson. see Elevator Heist. <laughs> I think you made that up, but it's also probably in the in development. <laughs> you didn't see Hurricane Earthquake. <laughs> you didn't see <laughs> San Andreas <laughs> Two San Hart. <laughs> so like I have nothing to talk to people about in the summer. But like by the end of the year, I can talk about a movie like Moonlight that no one would have seen otherwise. Mm -hmm. You know, no one, like my family would never have heard of, but has heard of because it won Best Picture. And a lot of movies like that that I can kind of say like, oh, like it, it just gives me something to like relate to people with. We have a common ground where as normally like my movie taste and the average person's movie taste, it's uh, two circles that are not intersecting. <laughs> yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. There's no Venn in that diagram. <laughs> so that 1998 show was the most watched in history Oscar telecast with 57 million people people watching because of Titanic. <laughs> Wow. It was hosted by Billy Crystal. Like, Jack Nicholson won an Oscar. It, it feels very Oscar-y, that Oscars. <laughs> and so that, like, leads us into the 1999 ceremony, which is now 20 years ago this month. So ABC and the Academy were trying to coast on that success from the Titanic year. They were trying to keep up that momentum, which I think they've been trying to do ever since. <laughs> like, there's always... Yeah. I don't know if this was a case, like, back in the 90s so much, but, like, every year there's all this, how are they gonna, like... Like, get people to watch the Oscars and ratings are always declining and people aren't watching live TV anymore so they should stop but that's the yeah. thing like Chris when you said 57 million like that number <laughs> rattled around in my brain because that is like an unheard number for broadcast yeah. TV now you know and it's interesting because so many obviously this whole show is about looking at things in retrospect that 1998 Titanic year like that's also kind of on the precipice of the total fragmentation of the viewing audience of live television Absolutely, yeah. Can you say how much was it for the Titanic year? 57 million 57 in America. Million. I, just, I just looked up uh, last year's Oscars, 2018. It was 26.5 million. Yeah, even so that's surprisingly. That's actually that's more than I would have guessed too. Yeah, but that's less than half. Yeah. Yeah. 
So in 1999, the Oscars were held for the first time on a Sunday rather than a Monday, which they used to be, which I didn't remember until like now looking back. I'm like, oh yeah, I feel like they were on a weeknight. The reason for that was both ratings and traffic. (laughs) (laughs) Traffic. On the Lord's Day. Well, they do start pretty early, right? Yeah, so, like, imagine getting... I mean, this is very inside L.A., but imagine <laughs> getting to, like, Hollywood and Island at, like, 5 o'clock You would have Monday. to take the 101 south oh, I was thinking about just people... I just mean people Harbor getting home, but did, were they tape-delayed for the West Coast when it was on a Monday? It's not like you, you're going to get off work at 5 on the dot. And I the, would. And the Oscars... But I just mean the general... <laughs> I'd take the day off. The general uh, person <laughs> who they, you know, they want people to watch. I called in sick to elementary school. <laughs> yeah, I mean, maybe, like, this was the year that they, like, really cared. I mean, I'm sure that at some level they always cared about ratings, but maybe, <laughs> I don't know, this was the year that they were, like, really, like, oh, maybe we should plan for for that or something. Yeah. I don't know. Hmm. 71st Academy Awards were held on March 21st, 1999, back when the Oscars were, like, late in March, which was a very long season. (laughs) And I think I would go nuts if it was that long (laughs) now, because it's already felt like a really long Oscar season. Mm -hmm. The show was four hours and two minutes. It was the third longest in history. Wow. Were people in the audience writing letters to their (laughs) long-lost loved ones? (laughs) Oscar season has been so long, my darling. Did they just not want to cut off anybody's speech? That's just how long they, right? they used to be, like, over, or, like, at least about four hours. And this telecast was watched by 47 million people, so still a pretty sizable audience, although about 10 million off from the year before. Whoopi Goldberg hosted for the third time after doing so in 1994 and 1996. It is my solemn task this evening to welcome you to the 71st Annual Academy Awards Ceremony. A ceremony devoted to rewarding the many, many people this year who played me. Yes. Or wrote about me. Or designed lovely frocks for me. Because, darling, it's all about me. Thank you. And for me, this is one of the most memorable and weirdest Oscar telecasts and seasons in general, because the Best Picture nominees were all either about World War II or Queen Elizabeth. (laughs) Celine Dion showed up wearing a backwards tuxedo. Oh, that was the year. This was that year. I remember that outfit very well. I remember that. We'll have to post that. Um, Elia Kazan was awarded the honorary Oscar, which was very controversial. Uh, People were protesting outside the ceremony because of his role in blacklisting in the 50s. Oh. Um, so people like Nick Nolte and Ed Harris like pointedly did not stand up as he had a standing ovation. I just want to pause briefly on the Ilya Kazan thing. Okay. What Ilya Kazan did was under pressure, he gave names to Joseph McCarthy of people within Hollywood, like writers in Hollywood who were suspected of being communists. At this time, it didn't really require proof of you being a communist to get you completely blacklisted and prevented from making a single cent in Hollywood. And so like <laughs> the protests of Ilya Kazan were, I think, pretty well-founded. It's kind of a controversy that's very minimized now and not really even remembered at this point, but it was a pretty big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had no idea... Like, I don't think I'd even heard of him at the time. Like, I was like, oh, this, Me neither. this is a weird moment. Like, mm-hmm. people, because I think some people were booing and stuff like that. Yeah. 
Roberto Benigni stole the show. <laughs> Roberto Benigni. <laughs> you can't see podcast listeners, but we're all doing the, the Italian hands. <laughs> we're doing the Italian hands. He jumped up on the seats when he won Best Foreign Language Film and was just a, still a very memorable, like, just you remember his presence, like, yeah. mostly at oh, the Oscars, absolutely. even more so than, like, his movie. Acrobatic, almost. And the Oscar goes to... He won Best Actor as well. Yes. Didn't, didn't jump on chairs that time, but no. <laughs> but that was the speech where he was like, I want to make love to all of you. <laughs> Thank you. This is a terrible mistake because I used up all my English. <laughs> no, I don't know. Oh, this is... A- Oh, what is that? How can I, I? I'm not able to express all my gratitude because uh, now is uh, my body is in tumult because it's a colossal moment of of joy. So uh, everything is really in a, in, a, in, a, in a way that I cannot express. I would like to be a, a, a Jupiter and kidnap everybody and lie down in the firmament making love with everybody. Because I don't know how to express. It's a question of love. And uh, Gwyneth Paltrow <laughs> won Best Actress wearing what I would consider maybe like the most iconic Oscar dress just because I feel like it's in, like, the top ten, for yeah, sure. Like, if you say, like, Gwyneth Paltrow winning an Oscar, I think everyone can immediately tell you what color she was wearing. What color was she wearing, Seth? Green? Oh. Uh, your thing I, failed. <laughs> anyone no, but Seth would like, be able to no, tell you. I'm, I'm sorry. I never really gave much of a shit about the Oscar fashions. Like You are you are in the minority. <laughs> yes. I'm really not. Like, outside of outside of our kind of relative circle of very closely held interests. I think you're wrong. I think think people care more about the fashion than who wins. I think that's honestly why people watch. Like the E coverage of, and like best and worst dress. Mm. Like people really like, I'm pretty sure it's on the cover of like people magazine every year. Like the best. That may be true. Do y'all know what kind of numbers like the E coverage gets? Probably more than the Oscars. (laughs) Yeah. At this point. I don't know, but a lot. I mean, they have coverage nonstop, like, the, the week after. Wait, so what color was she wearing? It was pink. It was pale pink. Oh. Was pale with pink. her hair back. Mm-hmm. I remember her hair back, but that was about it. And uh, Whoopi Goldberg uh, began the show in whiteface. That I do remember. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I remember that. Like, and a queen, Victor- like, queen Elizabeth gown. Yeah, she was not just putting on whiteface. She was dressing as Queen Elizabeth. But it was an interesting choice. It makes sense. Yeah. Whiteface is never okay. It's cultural appropriation. She should have came out dressed like that, but with like a machine gun. (laughs) (laughs) Are you giving Whoopi Goldberg notes? Yes. (laughs) From 20 years ago. Yeah. The 1999 Oscars also had a few things in common with this Oscar race, which I thought was interesting. Sandy Powell was nominated for two Oscars and was nominated for two in this year. She's the costume designer. Hmm. Oh, did she do Shakespeare in Love? Mm -hmm. What else did she do that year? Her other one was uh, Velvet Goldmine that year. Oh, interesting. Oh, wow. Oh, very different style. It also had a non-English language speaking actress in Best Actress. Uh, This year we have Yalitza Aparicio. Um, That year it was Fernanda Montenegro from a Brazilian 
film called Central Station. That's kind of a rare thing now. Like, they're both also not, like, well-known in mm-hmm. America. Plenty of women nominated for playing royalty. <laughs> we have the favorite this year. So there's three actress nominees all playing, like, costume dramas. Uh, foreign film nominated for Best Picture, Best Director, and up for other major awards. Uh, this year it's Roma. That year it was Life is Beautiful. Slightly different films, but... Mm-hmm. Slightly. <laughs> Only slightly. Uh, that year Primary Colors was nominated for a few awards. And... Um, this year we have Vice, so it's kind of, it's like sort of the opposite <laughs> movie, but also kind of like a celebrities playing recent politicians in a yeah. kind of yeah. a comedy-ish movie. Yeah. Yeah. So some things have changed. Some things haven't changed. No no Black Panther type movie back then? No, <laughs> they only had the five nominees. They couldn't fit in uh, <laughs> Speed 2 Cruise Control. Or <laughs> just just missed it, though. Just missed it. I'm, I'm sorry, uh, Black Panther, for <laughs> that comparison. That was not fair. <laughs> So the five uh, Best Picture nominees were Elizabeth, Shakespeare in Love, Saving Private Ryan, Life is Beautiful, and The Thin Red Line. Three World War II movies, and uh, Elizabeth is about Elizabeth, (laughs) as in Queen Elizabeth. And Queen Elizabeth is the role that Judi Dench played in Shakespeare in Love and won an Oscar for. For only uh, six minutes of screen time. Yes. (laughs) What a six minutes they were. They were. (laughs) Six minutes in heaven. So we are going to start talking about Saving Private Ryan, but what would an Oscar show be without a montage first? So <laughs> let's have a musical number, shall we? Wait a second. <laughs> you know, you okay. could have shown us a good one. Hugh Jackman hosted. <laughs> My brain is like overloading with just the names of movies and the whispered sounds. <laughs> they're, they're haunting me already. And our sisters. Platoon. Platoon. It's just the weirdest crop of movies to have like mentioned Honestly, in music. I've never done enough cocaine to make that legible. <laughs> that that None of that reads. Well, I mean, I would say the Oscars have improved in hosting since then. Um, <laughs> By not having a host this year? <laughs> I think, yeah, exactly. I feel like this may be the best one of all. Yeah, there have been some famously bad uh, musical numbers. Uh, the one with Rob Lowe and Snow White <laughs> is another That's one. That's probably the worst one. Isn't it exciting, Snow? Isn't it thrilling? It gets better. Meet your blind date, Rob Lowe. Oh, Mr. Lowe, I'm such a fan. Really? Well, I'm a big fan of yours, Snow, but you know, there's so much I'd like to know about you. Used to work a lot for Walt Disney Starring in cartoons every night and day But you said goodbye to Grumpy and Sleepy Left the dwarves behind, came to town to stay Late nights keep on burning 
a small part of that musical number. I watched the entire thing, which is 12 minutes long. It is <laughs> painful. <laughs> I can't imagine what they were thinking. That The producer of that show never worked in Hollywood suicide? again. I was about to say he committed suicide. <laughs> he was basically exiled from Hollywood. Wow. Yeah, that's the kind of blacklisting I can get behind. <laughs> and that's a perfect segue into Saving Private Ryan, uh, which was released <laughs> July 24th, 1998. It doesn't make any sense, sir. Why? Why me? Why do I deserve to go? Why not any of these guys? They all fought just as hard as me. Is that what they're supposed to tell your mother? When they send her another folded American flag? Tell her that when you found me, I was here. And I was with the only brothers that I have left. And there's no way I was going to desert them. I think she'll understand that. The budget was $70 million. On opening weekend, it earned $30.6 million for a total domestic gross of $216.5 million and a worldwide gross of $481.8 million. So it was a big hit. Wasn't it the top-grossing domestic movie that year? Yes, it was. Beating uh, another Oscar-caliber film, Armageddon. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy it beat that movie. It had pretty rapturous reviews all across the board. There were very few dissenters. Typical review at the time is Washington Post Stephen Hunter. He said, Searing, heartbreaking, so intense it turns your body into a single tube of clenched muscle. This is simply the greatest war movie ever made and one of the great American movies. So they liked it. <laughs> People liked it. I should have been the co-host most likely to be a, what was it? Clinched to A single tube of clenched muscle. <laughs> a single, yeah, yeah, that's me. It is also the last original screenplay to be number one at the box office. Mm. Everything since then has been sequel or some kind of... Oh, frowny um, face, Jesus. Yeah. That is grim. Steven Spielberg had won in 1994 for Schindler's List and had taken kind of a break from filmmaking for a few years and then came back in the year earlier with um, Amistad, which was another kind of pretty kind of serious movie that was in the Oscar conversation, but did not fare quite as well as Saving Private Ryan. Did you guys see Saving Private Ryan back in the day? I did. I saw it in theaters. Cool. Good story. <laughs> I remember, you know, being blown away by the opening sequence, but in 1998, I was 15. I didn't care much about it, even though I love Spielberg and I loved Spielberg then. I think it just wasn't the kind of Spielberg movie I wanted then. What about you, Seth? I definitely saw this movie in theaters, was blown away by the opening sequence depicting the invasion of Normandy at D-Day, did not like the rest of the movie, and had not rewatched it since then. Yeah, I never saw it in theaters, actually. I had heard about the violence and thought that it might be, like, too intense, because I feel like every single review basically was, like, the opening of this film is, like, so bloody and brutal. That was the conversation around this movie. Like, pretty much all of it was centered around that first half hour or so. So I never saw it. Um, I saw it probably, like, a year or so, maybe later. So by the time this Oscars happened, I had not actually even seen the movie. So I was also not, like, super invested in this movie, as I think 
like now I would care a lot more about this movie and how whether or not it won the Oscar. But at the time, it didn't seem like a travesty to me, at least because I hadn't seen it. Are you going through who's in it? And all that, like, no, yeah, I can do that. Silver. This movie has everything: <laughs> Ben Diesel, Matt Damon, Forrest Gump, <laughs> Giovanni Ribisi, Paul Giamatti, Brian Cranston, <laughs> Ted oh, Danson, <laughs> Nathan Fillion, all the uns, and no women. <laughs> No. There's a, there's, oh, I'm sorry. There's a secretary and a little French girl. They talk about women a lot. There's lots of boobs. Boob talk. You like that, right? You ladies like the boob talks? Like boobs. I'm being represented. I mean, if yeah. two guys are talking about a pair of boobs, is that the... It's That's a, the like, boob del test. <laughs> it's the boob del test. It's a two-part test. Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> Saving Private Ryan is still one of the number one R-rated movies. It's in the top 15 there because um, it's rare for a rated R movie to be like such a hit, especially wow. like worldwide. It is also the number one movie where Tom Hanks is a captain. <laughs> <laughs> Beating such films as Captain Phillips <laughs> and Sully. <laughs> oh, yeah. The movie was nominated for 11 Oscars, Best Picture, Best Actor, Best Original Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Makeup, and Best Dramatic Score. And it won five, including Sound Editing, Sound, Editing, Cinematography, (laughs) and Director. Am I allowed to say I really wanted this? This is fantastic. Um, Let me just turn my eyes to, to Mr. Hanks, who from the very, very beginning, said to me, this is going to be something extraordinary. Uh, we weren't really talking about the film. We were talking about the experience of making Saving Private Ryan. And he was right. It is one of the most extraordinary events of all of our lives, the lives of all of our families. We're all in it together. Those are very craft-focused Oscars, so I think that very much says what people thought about the movie, is that it sounded great, it looked great, you know, it's a very, like, technically accomplished movie. It did not win the ones that are more... Uh, prestige Prestige, yeah, like acting, you know, screenplay, the, the ones that are more, like... More I'm, I'm just pre- doing hand signals versus the Mark on a podcast. <laughs> We're back to doing Roberto Benini hands. The, 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 top, the top Oscars are always... Picture, director, actor, actress, supporting actor, supporting actress, and screenplay. Mm -hmm. And the ones that are more about, like, story and and performance, you know, it didn't win those. It won the ones that are very, like, craft-focused. So what do we think about Saving Private Ryan? (laughs) Is he saved? Is he private? (laughs) Is he Ryan? (laughs) Ryan? (laughs) So I've seen this movie a few times since I saw it in theaters when it was first released. I just always got bored with it because it's always about like the first 20 minutes. And then once that's over, I don't know if it's because it's such a strong opening or I just didn't care about the story really. I don't know. Like, um, I just never got into it. And so I watched it, um, recently for this podcast and I hadn't watched it in years. And I think it was the first time I was actually like really paying attention because I knew I couldn't tune out and like go on my laptop like I wanted to watch it for this podcast and it was the time that I liked it the most paying attention (laughs) paying attention worked out weird weird Um, that pays off sometimes but there was (laughs) I really liked it and you know what I was I I wasn't expecting to not like it but I'm gonna spoil myself a little bit for my opinion on uh, Shakespeare in Love is that I love Shakespeare in Love and I totally I watched that first 
and I, I know, I know it better. I've seen it more times over the years, and I was totally about to be like, Shakespeare in Love is awesome. Fuck Saving Private Ryan. Like it should have won. It did win. Good for that movie. And then I saw Saving Private Ryan, and I was like, Why didn't this win? <laughs> I was like, Hmm, this is actually really strange that this movie did not win Best Picture. Not again. Not saying that Shakespeare in Love is bad or or anything, but like just watching this movie, I was just honestly taken so aback at how much work <laughs> went into this movie. Like there are there are shots with like a thousand extras, <laughs> and it all shows on screen, and it is amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, I just wish I had seen it on a big screen. Honestly, like I really wish I could see this on a movie screen again. And I don't think it's a perfect movie, and there are some things about it that. I think are flawed, but it's two and a half hours and it's just so like grand. I did really enjoy watching it this time. Yeah, it reminds me of Titanic in in so many ways, just because it's such a feat of movie making that it's very hard to do. Yeah. Yeah, on a on a just craft level, but beyond craft, just the experience of watching this movie is completely overwhelming for basically the entire duration of it. And I had that experience in the theater as well, just definitely being taken in by the experience of watching this movie. But I have to say, I was still not super taken in by the story of it. Becky and I watched this movie together uh, in preparation for this. And at the same time, we both kind of paused on like the question of why it is that Private Ryan is this person who needs to be saved individually, like separately from all other soldiers in existence. Um, Mm -hmm. So this kind of like calls the basic plot. The overall plot of this movie is that Private Ryan is one of four siblings, I believe it is, and his three brothers are killed in battle. So it's decided by the U.S. government that like this individual guy has to be saved kind of no matter what the cost. And people die to get him home. Many, many people die to get him home. I don't know if they compromised specific missions like just to do that, but it seems like it's kind of like actively changing the country's war strategy <laughs> in order to get this one guy. And I didn't really understand it when I first saw it, and I definitely didn't get it now. But also my kind of biggest difference with this movie is a philosophical one. The holiness and goodness of America is very consistently invoked throughout this movie, and the last shot of this movie is ending on a waving American flag. It's the first shot of the movie, too. And it's the first shot of the movie as well, and it's this is getting into loaded conversation because our country's culture is very war-centric and very military-worshipping, and even as a child, but especially as a full-grown person, I think that war, especially in the way that America does it, is always a man's game, I think think it is very much a mark of a society that is patriarchal, that we spend so much of our time and effort thinking that we resolve conflicts through violence. And yes, World War II was different in some ways, and philosophically, America had some very legitimate reasons for getting into it. But also, like the real historical story of World War II is that it was won by the Soviets, who gave tens of millions more lives. And yet, this is the story about this one man. And I think in some ways, Saving Private Ryan, specifically as a movie, kind of carries outsized weight in the American imagination for what war is about. Again, it's a super compelling fucking experience watching this movie. And I think especially that D-Day sequence captures war 
I think in a way that no other movie had as effectively before Steven Spielberg did it. But I also think it does very literally glorify war as being this kind of noble endeavor in and of itself. Yeah, I think one of the things this movie is most memorable for besides that D-Day sequence is the bookends, which are often cited as the weakest part of the film. And I mean, it's hard to read those scenes as anything other than kind of what Seth was just saying as calling into the nobility of being a soldier, especially a soldier. Yeah, especially a soldier of World War II, which, you know, it's called the greatest generation. It's very esteemed in our history as other wars, you know, are not looked at the same way, but that one is considered, you know, it has a moral component to it because fighting against Nazism. And And not just that, it's been a war that has been used to attempt to justify every war that came after. You know, it wasn't just that, like, we consider World War II as separate from all other wars. It's like, no, America has been constantly at war since the end of World War II, which we ended by dropping nuclear bombs on a country that might have been trying to surrender to us. But even putting that massive atrocity aside, like, World War Two and Hitler have been invoked by every subsequent president to get America into further wars after that that had far, far less justifiable reasons. Yeah, I find those bookends to be very not representative of this movie and... I wish that they weren't there or were done differently because I, watching this movie this time, I found it so bleak and depressing in a way that I didn't really remember. The bookends? No, just the movie, the oh, movie okay. in between. Just that it's so nihilistic in a way that Steven Spielberg rarely is. And I think like he's known for sentimentalizing a lot of things and very few of his movies are like utterly bleak. Like most of them have some kind of hopeful ending. Munich is sad. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, there's a few, but like this is definitely one of the grittier ones. And even this one has a pretty, what I consider to be kind of a tacked on, like happy ending. Bittersweet, but you know, you walk out of the theater feeling like good, you know, in a way that you wouldn't if it ended just with, you know, Tom Hanks dying. Spoiler alert. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. So the thing about saving one man is that that's often questioned in the movie by the characters. A lot of them resent the fact that they have to be on this mission. And so I think most of this movie, besides those bookends, really does ask really difficult questions and challenges the idea that a war is good at all because we see all these people dying, some in in sort of noble ways, but others in just, you know, very random and cruel quick bursts of, Mm -hmm. you know, like their lives were kind of meaningless. They were just like fodder on the battlefield. Then we see people, you know, kind of needlessly dying on this quest that doesn't really have... Like, it has a little bit of PR value, and it obviously means a lot to this one family who will get their son back. But other than that, you know, it's called out in the movie that everyone has a family, you know? I guess it sucks to lose four children, but also to lose one. I'm I'm not sure, like, the magnitude of losing four is exponentially greater than losing one. Just purely mathematically (laughs) speaking, losing one out of four is 75% less traumatic. This is a problem I had in the movie, but I don't think it's the movie's fault? Was this a real thing the government wanted to do? Because I know the story is made up, but was this a real thing the government did or that they said they would do? I don't think so. Yeah, I I think think it's it's... a conceit invented for the movie. 
You do or I do. I think I it's a conceit it. completely made up for Because that. I don't I question that conceit so much. And I remember when I was younger just being like, I don't think I understand this because even when I was fifteen I was like, But all these people are dying for this one guy. What about all the parents back at home who have like only one child <laughs> right. and they're in the war and they die. They lost all their children too. You wanna to explain the math of this to me? I mean, where's the sense of risking the lives of the eight of us to save one guy? Twenty degrees. Anybody wanna answer that? Driving. Think about the poor bastard's mother. Hey, Doc, I got a mother, all right? I mean, you got a mother. Sarge has got a mother. I mean, shit, I bet even the captain's got a mother. Well, maybe not the captain, but the rest of us got mothers. There's not a reason why there's but to do and die. <laughs> what the fuck is that supposed to mean, Corporal, huh? We're all supposed to die, is that it? Nothing's talking about our duty as soldiers. Yes, sir. We all have orders and we have to follow, and that supersedes everything, including your mother's. Yes, sir. Thank you, sir. Even if you think the mission's FUBAR, sir? Especially if you think the mission's FUBAR. What's FUBAR? Oh, it's German. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Never heard of that. It just took away some enjoyment from the movie. And I know that characters in the movie are questioning that, too. But I think, just as a viewer, I'm just like, well, that's dumb. <laughs> Well, to me, that's like a really fundamental part of this movie and why it works and why it makes you think, because it does make you ask that question. But like we take World War Two as such a given that, you know, because it was there aren't many people who are like, oh, we shouldn't have done that. Like there are with like Vietnam or like the wars going on now where there's, you know, like World War Two had there was a necessity to involvement in it. And so we don't question that. But this the fact that we're questioning this one action, I feel like, is representative of just, like, questioning, like, why do we send millions or thousands of men, you know, off to die in these battles? Like, I, I feel like that is representative of just the question of, like, why go to war in general? Why waste all these lives? Like, yeah. to me, like, it doesn't really make sense. I mean, I don't think it makes sense in general to do this. And it, it's a weird thing that humanity does that doesn't really have a great function. I mean, it... I have to say, I did like the idea of doing a World War II movie, but the fact that they have a good mission that involves not killing someone and involves saving somebody, I thought that was a really interesting way to show the war around them. Because if it was just a standard, like, we need to... I don't think Spielberg would have done that. Like, if it's just, like, we need to shoot Nazis, like, and we need to win the war, like, that's not a compelling story, really, because it's not specific, like the specific story of trying to save one person um, um, in that in this carnage, in this needle needle in a haystack journey. Like I think that's really compelling, and I and I did appreciate that. Yeah, I think they found the movie depressing because of kind of what you're saying, which is that it made me think war sucks and all these people shouldn't be dying. And just like thinking about like the unnecessary like loss of life. I, in a way, did not enjoy watching this movie because I really did think about mortality so much in mm -hmm. it and just, mm -hmm. you know, like lots of useless death <laughs> that happened here and in, in other wars and violent acts in general. But I, I feel like this movie really wrestles with that in an interesting way. And in a way that I kind of wasn't expecting going back to it, knowing that the bookends were there and that it is considered, you know, kind of a respectable movie. It made me more uncomfortable and more depressed than I actually thought that a, like a Spielberg movie was going to because I hadn't seen it in a few years. Anyone else think that was Tom Hanks in the beginning and the bookends? Yes. <laughs> because I remember thinking that also when I was 15 and, be and then at the end when it's... Matt Damon, I was like, what? 
Oh, that was Tom Hanks. Why did they get a guy that looks just like Tom Hanks as an older man? And like they do this zoom in and then they do the same zoom in with Tom Hanks later. And I was like, oh, he's the guy. He's mm-hmm. not the guy. It's not. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that that's intentional, that you're supposed to think that that's Tom Hanks. And I think it's to surprise you that like... Tom Hanks dies and not just like Tom Hanks but like the hero of the movie and someone who's so likable and who we're used to seeing not die in movies uh, <laughs> everyone likes Tom Hanks no, another patented die. Spielberg switcheroo <laughs> <laughs> well I didn't like that <laughs> <laughs> I had a big problem with the music and the score in this movie. I really like John Williams generally. This is maybe the only time that I thought just the score was so heavy handed and very on the nose for so much of it. It was like telling me how to feel versus like just accompanying a moment. Get this. It felt like I'm supposed to feel this like patriotic. I don't know. It was just so yeah. on the nose. It was, yeah. and it was everywhere, and I really didn't want it. There were so many scenes that I wish the score was just not there, and they were just talking. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like that would have improved it a lot, and wouldn't have made it feel so manipulative. Yeah, I think that's especially true in those bookends. Like, it's very, very noticeable, and it's really reaching for something that I, I guess, I don't feel. So it's, it's very mm-hmm. annoying to be told that you should be feeling this yeah. by the music when you're actually not. And one of the lines of the movie is like, "Earn this," and and I feel like so much of the movie does, but those scenes do not earn the emotion that they're going for yeah. with that score. Mm-hmm. I also thought a lot of the monologues were heavy-handed. There were some monologues that were good, that, like, they're all hanging in a church for the night, waiting to, like, go off in a few hours and keep going on their journey. And they, you know, there's nice interactions with the characters, and we learn about their life when they're not at war. Um, but just, a, just there's just a couple monologues where I'm like, all right... <laughs> Like, we get it. Like, Tom Hanks talking about him being, like, a school teacher back at home. I'm just like, all right, this is a little overwritten. And there's just, like, a few moments of that where I'm like, uh. Yeah, I really love that sequence in the church. I think that's beyond, like, the first beginning of the movie. I think that's the strongest sequence. And I was struck by how theatrical it felt, how much it felt like a play. Mm-hmm. And certain parts of this movie, for as cinematic as it is, there are long, also, like, very dialogue-heavy parts that mm-hmm. do feel like a play. So I, I kind of appreciated that and how in the characters' heads we get. I thought Giovanni Rabisi was kind of the standout for me mm-hmm. in this movie, Same. which was not something I remembered. You know, I've never been, like, super impressed with him in anything. I mean, he's always he's just a reliable, like, oh, yeah, Giovanni Rabisi. And this is the first time I've really noticed his acting and been like, wow, he was... He was great, and he was the character that I felt the most invested in in this. And he was the medic. Yes. So what I, I used to do, I used to lie in my bed and try to stay awake as long as I could, but it never worked, because the harder I tried, the faster I'd fall asleep. <laughs> yeah, well, I wouldn't have mattered none in my house. My ma, she would have come home, shook me awake, chatted me up till dawn. I swear that one was never too tired to talk. That's probably the only time she could get a word in. 
thing is, sometimes she'd come home early. And I pretend to be asleep. Who? Your, your mom? Yeah. She'd stand in the doorway looking at me. And I'd just keep my eyes shut. And I knew she just wanted to find out about my day. That she came home early. Talk to me. And I still wouldn't move. I'd still pretend to just be asleep. I don't know why I did that. And I think it's so interesting that a character. They had a medic as a character because when he's dying, like he knows what's happening to him, and it's yeah, when just he knows disturbing. it's his liver yeah. that's shot. Like yeah, I was see, like, he's the medic; he knows like yeah. how bad that is. I, I actually would have preferred or would have more immediately gotten into a movie where like the Private Ryan was the medic or like was the best medic or like leading the team of medics, something like that, where it's like the necessity of him is a lot more apparent, readily apparent. Right, but I think. Like, the movie is trying to not satisfy you and not, and it's trying to make him as ordinary as possible. And the Matt Damon character, who is Private Ryan, doesn't show up until the end. And there is one monologue with him, you know, where you get to know him kind of, but he's definitely not exceptional. He's not particularly heroic. And I think they, like, he hasn't really even seen very much combat. I think he recently arrived. And in the end, he's kind of sitting in a corner and crying or screaming um, and not actually, like, saving anyone and I think that's an intentional choice for the movie to not have him be someone necessary like I agree that it's not satisfying as a story but I think that's really part of the purpose I think you're right that that's like the intent of it I think that makes perfect sense another thing that kind of like knocked me out of this movie was occasionally they do this very herky-jerky slow motion and it looks like they're doing it in editing I don't know if they did it when they shot or what but especially in the early D-Day sequence but throughout the movie it just really kind of took me out of the experience and, and didn't pull me into the experience of warfare in the way that the other visual stylistic things did it did work for me a couple of times. They do it a couple of times when, like, a character is supposed to be overwhelmed and sort of, like, checking out of war. And I really appreciated that, that because it's so so much, like, sound and fury, and then there are these kind of quiet moments where the sound goes away, and they're just, like, overwhelmed and tuning out, like, they're all of the war. And it worked for me when it was like that. But, yeah, I mean, the camera work in general in this movie is very much more handheld than I remembered it being and much shakier. And really, I think this was probably, I want to say, the first movie that really did that style and obviously set the tone for any war movie after. Or video games. Yeah, video games, I think. It's true. Just mostly action movies. I think, like, this movie is probably, like, technique-wise, one of the most influential movies of the past, I guess, 30 years or whatever. Good job, Janusz Kaminski. (laughs) I read that um, Spielberg didn't um, storyboard any of the opening sequence. Oh, wow. He just arrived and um, they worked their way. It was weeks of production, but they worked their way um, like chronologically through the beach, you know, towards going inland. Mm -hmm. He shot a lot of that opening sequence um, as opposed to his DP. He just kind of grabbed the camera and was like kind of 
did it going off what the action was that he was seeing. I really like those moments, particularly in the first sequence, where it's just so loud and overwhelming that I think it really helps break up that very long sequence to have some moments where it's not so loud and everything kind of slows down and you see very specific things, not just the grandness of all these people dying. You see the guy, a very famous shot, the guy looking for his arm and picking it up. One of the things that's tough when you are watching a classic piece of cinema is that you've seen it either paid homage to or parodied <laughs> a mm-hmm. lot. And like, I feel like the opening sequence, as good as it is, didn't quite land such a gut punch to me this time just because it has influenced so much or I've seen like jokes about like the guy picking up his arm, like, or yeah. you know what I mean? Like, or just that style. And also we've lived in a country where like America's not just perpetually at war, but we're perpetually at war, like on TV. And we all have a much more common vocabulary of war injuries and the traumatic, horrific, like gore and carnage of it. Like, I feel like we are in a way kind of more desensitized to it, even than a lot of folks would have been like after world war two. Yeah. I mean, I think there were, obviously a lot of war movies before this this one broke new ground in like how violent it was and and graphic it was the thin red line uh, was nominated for best picture you know the same year and i watched that again for this podcast too and it's very very bloodless and it's it's really hard to watch it after saving private ryan because the the technique of the movie is amazing but like there's almost no blood in it at all even though people are being killed in action and so it just feels much more artificial like this interesting like this feels like how could war not be like this you know like mm-hmm. if yeah it, it is such a gut punch and even though i don't think that it has that same impact that it did at the time because we have seen it done so often i think maybe this movie is like the reason why we have seen it so much and why like i don't know maybe that's in a way, a bad thing that we've gotten kind of desensitized to it and that this kind of ushered in that it was okay to show, like, extreme violence in a very serious drama. I I don't know if there were other dramas before this that had that, like, level of violence. Like, not that I can really think of. Dramas were pretty much more, like, epic sweeping things and Mm -hmm. this made that, like, a lot of Oscar movies now are violent and have, like, war violence or things like that. And Yeah, Hacksaw Ridge that came out a few years ago uh was maybe the goriest movie I've seen. Right, yeah. (laughs) But with so much less, like, impact overall. Yeah. Um, I want to give a shout-out to the production design of this movie. Mm -hmm. Um, I just remember watching the movie, and then part of it struck me that it's a movie, (laughs) and they're not actually in a in a in an active war zone in an active war zone (laughs) destroyed french town that it actually was and it's 1998 so a lot of it probably is in computer animation like they built these destroyed destroyed buildings and i just it it i went out of the movie and went just was like wow (laughs) wow holy shit like well done yeah the production and set design are just fucking incredible they really are yeah this movie has a lot of cameos (laughs) uh so many (laughs) We're in this movie. Everyone's in this movie. <laughs> yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's so weird. Like, a lot of people that weren't famous at the time, and now it's just like, it feels like every extra is, like, a huge star. <laughs> so like, I, I kind of, like, rewatched parts of it to be like, was that a, what was it, huh? Mm-hmm. So we got uh, Paul Giamatti. Ted Danson. <laughs> Brian Cranston. 
Uh, Nathan Fillion. Who plays the other Ryan. <laughs> yeah. That I, that scene, I actually really enjoyed this time. Because yeah. it's, it's this weird comedic moment, because this guy's being told that his brothers <laughs> are dead. And... <laughs> You know, I mean, that's not funny, but it is. It's just funny that he like he has this reaction, and he's like, "How are they? How do they die? They're ten. Yeah, <laughs> like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> hilarious. <laughs> and I, I... I'm so sorry, James. I can't tell you how. <laughs> how how did they die? They were killed in action. <laughs> I, I can't be. It can't be. My brother's still in grammar school. You're James Ryan. Yeah. James Francis Ryan from Iowa. James Frederick Ryan, Minnesota. What does that, does that mean my brothers are okay? Yeah, I'm sure they're fine. Are you sure that they're okay, though? I... We're looking for a different private, Ryan. This is just a big foul-up. How, how do you know? How can you be sure? How do you know that the foul-up isn't that, 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 that his brothers are, are okay? And I'm, uh... Lieutenant, I'm sorry for the trouble. I just wrote them a letter before I left. I gotta get home. Yeah, I appreciated that. Just that kind of macabre approach to death that, like, you have to have if you're in like this kind of situation. And obviously, these soldiers are very, very desensitized to violence at this point, and, and you know, have to, you know, kind of joke around. And it felt very much like you're there with these guys, and that their attitudes about death, being sometimes cavalier about it, and other times, you know, horrified by it, really felt true. Mm-hmm. What did you guys think of the Jeremy Davies character? I wanted to get into Who him. Is that? He's the one that is he's kind of the audience proxy, I feel like. He's the one Upham? Yes. Yes. Okay. So he is the character who um hasn't he's a translator, I believe, and so he's he is not used to um fighting and, and hasn't killed anyone, and so he's often kind of he's brought along because they need a translator, but is basically like kind of signed up for this deadly mission. <laughs> He's the most meek and the most um, horrified by what he's seeing, whereas the other soldiers have kind of seen a lot of it before. Like, he's the one that says, don't shoot that German guy. Like, he's he's uh, surrendering. Mm-hmm. He's surrendering. Don't shoot him. And he he helps lead him into the woods with a blindfold on. And that's the same guy who comes back later and kills one of his fellow soldier teammates. I don't know what you call them. <laughs> Uh, other soldier, other soldier in his platoon, comrades, comrade, and he's just shaking in the hallway. Doesn't even know what to do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I appreciated that because not everyone's meant for war. Yeah, what, what is he even doing there? What is that? Where are any of us doing there? It just made me think of the gr- the whole concept of like, what are we even doing there at all? Yeah, I yeah, and him. I think that's the intention, Chris. Like you were saying, I think he is kind of the audience proxy for that and for the the paralysis that many people would feel in the face of that. Yeah, I appreciated him because it makes me so angry at the end when he's not, like, helping. Like, he could save Adam Goldberg. Adam Goldberg! Yeah. Could go up there and save him and is too paralyzed by fear to do it. And you're, like, angry because you expect him to, like, muster the energy and, like, have this heroic moment. And then he doesn't. And it's... 
yeah, it, it's very, very unsatisfying in, in a, the way that I think a lot of this movie is, is that it plays on sort of what you want to happen in a story like this. And oh, you and want him to, like, grow the balls and be like, have that violent moment. And, well, and, and not, not, I don't know about you, but not only did I want him to grow a set and go up and kill that guy, when the German gets away with killing Adam Goldberg and comes down the stairs, I wanted the German soldier to kill Upham because he was such a weakling or whatever. And because in the moment, Upham, who's this gangly little kid, is wearing like these gigantic bandoliers of bullets, like acting like a acting, putting on the costume of a Rambo tough guy when he's really just a complete weakling. And the German soldier doesn't even kill him. He just kind of takes one sniff at him and then walks off and walks away. Yeah, it's really fascinating, I think, just on a thematic level to end it there, because so few of these guys survive. And so we're questioning why Private Ryan, and there isn't anything exceptional about him. And this guy, who really should be the first one to die, because he has no skill in combat whatsoever, is one of the few to make it out. And we'll have to, like, live with this moment of cowardice. Like, in a way, I wish, like, it was him at the end, you know, or something like that. That's my problem, I guess, with the ending is that, like, the rest of the movie is so morally complex. And and at the end, it just feels like noble old grandpa, like... Yeah, and, 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 like, exactly like you're getting at, like, one thing I enjoyed more watching it this time was how deliberately Spielberg played with my expectations at every turn. And just as you're saying, like, I, I do kind of wish that if not different characters in the bookends, then there there would have been that that kind of turn or twist in the bookends rather than it not being Tom Hanks and just having it be Private Ryan. Like, if he could have done something more to even twist that knife even further. And because, again, I do think the rest of it is more effective than I was previously giving it credit for in terms of showing the pointlessness of war and in ways and in dramatic ways that typically aren't done in war movies. Um, but I also think that there were kind of ways that that could have been done that would have paid off even more. Yeah, like, because in the end, he has a family that's all with him coming to him, coming with him to the cemetery. And, you know, he says, like, tell me I'm a good man. You know, he wants to know that he earned, basically, which you you can't earn the fact that you have survived and many other people have died. But he... It, it does kind of, it's like, oh, well, at least he has this family and there's like this generation of people who wouldn't exist if he had died in war. Um, and if that guy ended up being just like a shitbag <laughs> with what? no family and was just, you know, like, it, it, would, it would make that kind of pointlessness, it, w- it would carry on the theme of, I think, the middle section of the movie more than the actual bookend, which kind of seems to go God, against everything like, if he, everything like, else. showed up at the graveyard and was just, like, drinking his ass no, off. here's and... my rewrite. Take out the score. <laughs> no score. Oh, I think In the beginning abs- and end. No score. I think score. that single-handedly would have improved the movie so much. Take out his family. He No family. He's there alone. And he says the exact same lines to the gravestone. And says, tell me... I'm, am I a good man? Did I live a good I'm life? I'm greenlighting this right now. Yeah. You saved Saving Private Ryan. <laughs> I did. Um, yeah, that's because I don't want there to be... He shouldn't get an answer. He should still be thinking about yes. these things and, and and having it weigh on yes. him. And did I have... Like, I, ho- I hope I had a good life. Like, that all these people that sacrificed their life for me, these should still be issues that he's dealing with. I think one of the problems of the bookends is veterans or people that are very pro-military see that and they're like well it was worth it he has a good life it was worth all those people dying 
but they're not focusing on the middle of the movie, which is basically saying, this is fucking hell. Why are we here? Why are we doing any of this? We could all just put our guns down on both sides and no one has to die. But the endings, the beginning and end are kind of like, oh, it was worth it. It was good. It's very assertive when it should be still like, is it? Like, we should still be having that debate and it feels like the movie is answering it versus continuing like, we don't know. Yeah, I totally agree that that would be a much stronger beginning and ending. And I would like to offer this potential rewrite as he tells his wife, tell me I'm a good man. And she says, I want a divorce. (laughs) 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 Your shit bag. And then a dog looks at the camera like, can you believe this? (laughs) Then it does like a Looney Tunes (laughs) black circle closing in. The futility of war. Yeah, this movie makes me not want to go to war. I don't know about anyone else. Uh, yeah, I canceled my vacation plans. So to war? <laughs> Where are you going? World War II. I actually wish that they hadn't cast Matt Damon because I thought maybe a lesser known actor would have worked better in the role of Private Ryan. Though I read up that Spielberg thought he was not such a well-known actor when he cast him, and then Good Will Hunting came out. Right, yeah. <laughs> so he kind of did want to go for somebody mm. not recognizable, but then he became a superstar. Yeah, I mean, it's weird because Good Will Hunting feels like a movie that would be really small and that no one would pay attention to Matt mm-hmm. Damon, yes. like someone the lead yes. in that kind of very small movie. And he weirdly became a superstar as, like, not just the star of that movie, but as a screenwriter, like, because they won the Oscar and like it was so like Matt and Ben like that is just like a weird fluke of anomaly. history yeah. Yeah. And yeah Matt and Ben are uh, competing in these movies they certainly are and who <laughs> who comes out better <laughs> <laughs> So while we're on the subject of World War II, let's talk about Life is Beautiful a little bit, just because <laughs> it is a comedy about the Holocaust. It's both. It's a drama and a comedy. Yeah. It has a very distinct tonal change. <laughs> it, it certainly does. Yeah, I rewatched that um, for the um, purposes of this podcast as well. And unlike Saving Private Ryan, that movie was very polarizing at the time. One of the good reviews is uh, the Portland Oregonian. Sean Levy said, one of the greatest films about the civilian experience of war ever made anywhere. Wow. Slate's David Edelstein said, Benini's movie made me want to throw up. <laughs> but in a good way? <laughs> no, it was a, it was a zero star oh, review. Oh, wow. Like a garbage I movie. I think you're right that it was definitely um, polarizing, but most people that I remember back then fucking loved that movie. Loved I liked it. it a lot at the time. Like, it was a mo- it was like weirdly a movie like to go to with your whole family and everyone has a good time. And rewatching it now. Would you call it a Holocaust romp? <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'm going to not make jokes, (laughs) is what I'm going to do. I actually didn't find, like, the Holocaust part that um, problematic, but I I had forgotten, like, the first whole hour of the movie is just, like, this zany Italian comedy Mm -hmm. that, like, I found really hard to watch. Is it because it's just all physical comedy, very, like, over the top? Yeah, it's so old-fashioned and so Italian that I was like, what movie is this? And actually was, like, relieved when they got to the concentration camp (laughs) because then the movie becomes, like, a real movie and has an acceptable tone, I think. I was wondering if this movie would be, like, horribly offensive now, just, you know, something like making light of the Holocaust. But I actually think it treats it with enough weight that it's, like, it's not a great movie, but it also isn't. Yeah, I never thought that it was ever making fun of the Holocaust. It was, it's because there's something like a relationship there. That's the core of it is that he's trying to shield the horrors of the Holocaust from his son. So he's not making fun of the Holocaust. In fact, it's, it's kind of sad how he's like trying to act like this clown in a concentration camp 
but you know that it's going to end badly, <laughs> you know, but you see like the smile on the son's face. It's a very heart tugging movie. I think people love it so much because they're thrown off guard of like, oh, it was this fun movie. And now I, like, whoa, wait a minute. Like I've learned to like these characters and it's just very um, an emotional experience at the movies. I didn't rewatch. I watched some clips on YouTube, but I, I remember liking it at the time. And it became one of the few movies that are that's a foreign movie that got nominated for Best Picture and became like this pop culture thing, which very few foreign movies do. Yeah, it's one of the highest grossing foreign films still. It was nominated for seven Oscars, which is a lot for a foreign film. All of the other Best Picture nominees were nominated for seven Oscars. Shakespeare in Love was nominated for 13 and Saving Private Ryan was 11. But then Elizabeth, Life is Beautiful and The Thin Red Line were all nominated for seven. So... Like looking back at the Oscar pool, it was very dominated by those five movies. There weren't a whole lot of other movies that got other nominations. Best Actor, as we've said, was won by Roberto Benigni in two very memorable moments. <laughs> yes. um, and I rewatched them, and they're so fun, though. Yeah. Because it was some, like, he won for Best Actor after winning Best. Uh, foreign movie and he's like I used to bought my English already <laughs> it's just so it's so adorable it's a great Oscar moment yeah. yeah it's hard to argue with it like when like you think of like the boring speech that anyone else would have had you know it's like <laughs> that moment like lives on like, we still remember it 20 years later, even mm-hmm. if we hadn't just watched... Wait, you don't remember just lists of publicists? <laughs> and... Oh, I loved it when, uh, yeah, Nick Nolte thanked uh, His Howard. entertainment lawyer. <laughs> <laughs> the law offices of Alan Split. <laughs> Who could forget? <laughs> Gerald Feldstein. <laughs> Best Actress and Best Supporting Actress were won by Gwyneth Paltrow and Judi Dench of Shakespeare in Love. Best Supporting Actor was James Coburn in Affliction, which um, I watched just because I'd never seen it and it was an interesting movie. It's by Paul Schrader, who finally got his first Oscar mm. nomination this year, uh, even though that's bonkers. Yes, that's his first time. Even Wait, though he he wrote Taxi Driver. I didn't know that First Reformed got anything. Yeah, I got a nomination for Best Original Screenplay. Oh, okay. That's a, a wrong that has been righted, finally. The Oscars are very famous for wronging, like, doing things wrong and then fixing them later by... Very things. visibly fixing But them. then that's yes. doing yeah. it wrong again, because yeah. then they should have won the first time, not the second. Yeah. Pretty much, yeah. You've identified the fatal flaw in their <laughs> system, Becky. <laughs> There's a lot of people who win for movies that shouldn't be honored. But then that year, the person wins for something they don't deserve. Another person doesn't win for something they do deserve. And it just This is going. why we need to create our own <laughs> Splinter Group award show called the Shoulda, Coulda, Wouldas. I would 100% re-litigate every Oscar year on oh, a podcast. Oh, we know you would. This is what you're trying to do with this This is this my podcast. life's purpose. <laughs> is it a purpose? Uh, best screenplay was uh, original screenplay was Shakespeare in Love, of course. Um, best adapted screenplay was Gods and Monsters. So mm. that was another movie that um, it was Brendan Fraser at his peak. Yes, it also holds up really well. I just watched that again too. So did you go to work this week? <laughs> nope. <laughs> he has never had a job. I've been He's preparing for months for this podcast. <laughs> We will now head from D-Day to Elizabethan England with Shakespeare in Love. Thank you, Becky. I cannot say Elizabethan for some reason, and so she had to fill in. <laughs> Shakespeare in Love was released on December 11th, 1998. 
The budget was $25 million. It grossed $100 million in the U.S. and worldwide $289 million. Wow. So also quite a big hit. The reviews were a little bit more mixed. They were mostly good, but there were some people at the time who found it to be a little bit trite and silly. Shakespeare in Love was nominated for 13 Oscars, a pretty uh, nice sum. It was nominated for Best Director, Cinematography, Editing, Makeup, Sound, and Supporting Actor. And the seven that it won were Art Direction, Costume Design, Comedy Score, Original Screenplay, Supporting Actress, Actress, and Picture. So, quite a lot there. (laughs) And the Oscar goes to Gwyneth Paltrow, Shakespeare in Love. has appeared in nearly 20 films, including Emma and Sliding Doors. This is her first Academy Award. I would like to thank the Academy from the bottom of my heart. Um... I would like to thank Emily Watson and Fernanda Montenegro and my friend Kate Blanchett and the greatest one who ever was, Meryl Streep. I, I don't feel very deserving of this in your presence, but I would like to thank Harvey Weinstein and everybody at Miramax Films for their undying support of me. I just have to say, this movie has everyone. <laughs> ben Affleck true. with a goatee. Goopy. <laughs> Goopy. <laughs> I refer to Gwyneth Paltrow as Goopy. Who doesn't? Shakespeare in Love was written by Mark Norman and Tom Stoppard and directed Famous by... Famous playwright Tom Stoppard. Yes, very Shakespearean playwright Tom Stoppard who wrote Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. And Tom Stoppard is also a famous script doctor in Hollywood. He's worked on Star Wars movies. He's worked on a whole lot of different movies. Yeah, and he did Brazil, which oh, we yeah. talked about indeed, indeed. several episodes back. It is also notable for being produced by Miramax, a.k.a. Harvey Weinstein. Oh, really? Did he did he produce that? Yeah, he's did been he? in the news a little did bit lately. This is the movie, really, that is looked to as the exemplar of how he basically bullheadedly like got so many nominations and wins for his movies. Like He had won other... He had been involved in other Oscar-winning movies before, like My Left Foot, The Crying Game, The Piano, Pulp Fiction, English Patient, and Good Will Hunting. So he had already you know been involved in these kinds of movies before but for some reason this is the one that maybe because it was so controversial or surprising that Shakespeare in Love beat Saving Private Ryan like this kind of gave him the reputation as like oh it's more about the politics that he's doing behind the scenes and the publicity than it is just like sort of about the merits of the movie I mean that's why we're doing this podcast because it was such a controversy that this movie won over Saving Private Ryan Yeah, and for so long that Harvey Weinstein has been so synonymous with the Oscars. I mean, before the um, sex scandal news came out about a year ago, like, that's who he was, is he was the guy who was gonna, like, win Oscars at any cost. And he was always known as kind of a douchebag, even aside from, you know, sexual misconduct allegation. This was another reason why this is a particularly interesting uh, telecast to revisit. Yeah, Harvey. (laughs) So what is your history with Shakespeare in Love? I saw this movie in theaters. It came out when I was 15, and that was when I was a freshman, sophomore in high school, and I was taking drama, and we were learning about Elizabethan (laughs) England and Shakespeare at the very time this movie came out. So I think more than most normals... (laughs) 
<laughs> I I got a lot of the references that were that are very deep cuts, mm-hmm. um, because I was studying it that exact year. So I enjoyed it. I remember Tom Stoppard was a big deal too when we were learning about very important playwrights and that fact that he wrote the script and and I always liked this movie. It will shock everyone out there to know, but I, too, was a theater nerd, um, both in the... I'll, I'll hold for gasps. I'm sorry about that. Both in the acting sense, and also I became a tech nerd at a certain point, where I like learned, like, oh, I can be the wizard in charge of making the lights go and adjusting all everyone's microphones to catch them saying embarrassing things. We can attest that he still likes doing that. No, me? Never. <laughs> I saw Shakespeare in Love in the theater and really enjoyed the hell out of it, Becky, basically for the same reasons. And also, you know, like I, I was, I had enough of a movie vocabulary by that point that I caught a lot of like the references about movie making too. Like it is mm-hmm. very much a postmodernist take on Shakespeare in a much more comedic direction than Romeo and Juliet, which was also such a phenomenon Oz of Lerman. the 90s. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, Shakespeare was hot. Like Shakespeare, in this he, well, and he was yeah. very hot. He's Joseph Fiennes. Yeah, <laughs> right. Yeah, no, I I took the movie at face value and enjoyed the hell out of it. And I was definitely an Oscar watcher by that point. So I remember kind of hearing about how much promotion Shakespeare in Love was getting. And I don't know if I perceived it as a controversy so much, but that was around the point where I definitely started to become aware that like Miramax was a thing. And specifically that it made these movies that got a lot of Oscar buzz and attention over and above pretty much any of the big studios were getting at that point. How did you remember it? Did you remember it as a good movie or did you think that it was overrated, which I think is at least part of its reputation now that like because it beat Saving Private Ryan and because it was like a Harvey Weinstein triumph that it it, it has definitely a certain stench might be a, yeah. a strong word, but it has that around it. I would say it was just one of those movies for me that I enjoyed while I watched it and just didn't think too much about it either way afterward. I think it's only in retrospect that I've come to think of it as having been overrated, you know, but I've also disagreed with plenty of Oscar decisions over the years, some much more vehemently than this. So I guess it just doesn't stick out that much to me. Okay. Yeah, I actually saw this in theater as well. I snuck into this movie by buying a ticket to another movie. Uh, it was my first what act you, of rebellion. What did you buy the ticket for? I don't remember. Was it Shine? <laughs> and you had to go see Shine. I think it was not Shine, because <laughs> I did not see Shine. <laughs> I also was a high school student studying Shakespeare. I was in a Shakespeare class. We were reading Hamlet, and and we read Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead. So this was very much like the nerdy movie du jour. People were referencing it. Like, it was everyone's favorite movie at the time. So actually, like... To me, it felt like right that it won Best Picture at the time because I saw it, I enjoyed it, I got all the references. Like, everyone kind of loved the movie at the time, and at least normals loved the movie. <laughs> like, it wasn't a controversial movie to like <laughs> for normals. Did uh, we get a good review from normals? <laughs> normals, say. That was on the poster. <laughs> and I had seen both of these movies again, like, a, a few times since they came out. I own them both on DVD. So my memory was that, like, this was a perfectly fine Oscar winner. Like, they're very different movies, so it's like, they're go- they're obviously going for different things, but um, especially with how poorly people think about Harvey Weinstein now, you almost feel bad for this movie, uh, just 
or any movie that he was involved in, mm-hmm. like because it, it's now kind of weighted down by that. But aside from that, yeah, it's definitely not by any means the worst decision the Oscars ever made. <laughs> no, and we can get into that later. Yeah. But uh, and her lips, her lips. The early morning rose would wither on the branch if it could feel envy. And her voice, like Lark's song, deeper, softer. None of your twittering larks. I would banish nightingales from her garden before they interrupt her song. Oh, she sings too. Constantly, without doubt, and plays the lute. She has a natural ear and her bosom. Did I mention her bosom? What of her bosom? Oh, Thomas. A pair of pippins as round and rare as golden apples. I think the lady is wise to keep your love at a distance. For what lady could live up to it? Close to when her eyes and lips and voice may be no more beautiful than mine. So let's talk about a movie I like to call Hot Shakespeare. (laughs) Sexy Shakespeare. (laughs) Or 16th century backwards Tootsie. (laughs) Backward Tootsie in heels. I love this movie. Still. I still love this movie. Wow. I'm going to go buy it because I had to rent it for this and I love it. I love it. I think it is one of the smartest screenplays ever written. And I think I thought that back then because I remember my drama teacher telling everybody, go see Shakespeare in Love. Like, it's one of the smartest screenplays for a movie. And he was right. It's so smart. It's There's so many references to things that you would have no idea unless you really knew that era. Um, and, you know, all about the Rose Theater and like Christopher Marlowe and like and all those people um it's just so smart I I wish I had like the screenplay in front of me and I could just read it like a book um I love this movie because it is a movie that Shakespeare would have written because it incorporates so many tropes from Shakespeare plays into this movie and it just it 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 it's basically saying like Shakespeare was inspired by his own life, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know, and saw the things around him and 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 just put that in his plays. And um, it's just so smartly written and wonderfully performed. And it just makes me happy. Like, I'm very happy when I watch this movie. I just think it's perfect. Yeah, I think it's hard to, like, watch it and not think that Shakespeare wrote it <laughs> or that you're just, like, watching another, like, Shakespeare adaptation because it has so many of those tropes that are from his plays, particularly, like, cross-dressing and, you know, mistaken identities. And, like, star-crossed love. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And royals and, yeah. And mysterious deaths that people aren't really dead. Um, just all of it. And it it's just I, just, I still think it's such a smart script and... The I mean the directing is fine, um, but the costume design is incredible. I mean, there's just so many good things about this movie. Um, it just makes me so happy to watch it. <laughs> I guess I already said that, but I, I still love it so much. Seth, how happy does it make you to watch it? <laughs> I, I see a face. Explain your face for the listeners. This movie is fucking nonsense. This movie is absolute nineties nonsense. Why is it nonsense? It, it is a movie that is written like Family Guy, where you are rewarded for being able to spot its references, and it offers you basically nothing deeper than that. It is very fun to watch, but instantly forgettable, and to me has absolutely no depth whatsoever. The Killing me. <laughs> the premise of the actual plot of this movie is fucking ridiculous. It's a Shakespeare play! 
The f- okay, so this movie begins with a scene of torturing Jeffrey Rush in the backstage area of the theater that Shakespeare puts his plays on in, and he's literally getting his feet raked over the coals by this man that he owes money to, which, that is not a phrase that was derived literally from a practice that happened, but also, how did those coals get in the backstage area of this theater? They put them there. Why is this the first moment of this movie? (laughs) I was baffled at every step of this movie by what was actually happening, um, because uh, I fully admit freely that I was once again drawn into and charmed by the references in this movie. I really enjoyed the performances. I think Jeffrey Rush is amazing. This was the first movie I remember seeing him in. Um, definitely the first movie I saw Gwyneth Paltrow in. I'm I'm very taken in by and charmed by all the performances in this movie. I mean, like, the cast we haven't really gotten into, but there are a ridiculous number of other people in this movie who I would go on to love in other movies. But again, this movie begins with a scene of torture. The second scene in this movie is Shakespeare on the brown leather couch of a medieval psychiatrist. Yeah! Talking about, <laughs> Why are you saying this like it's a bad thing? Talking about his writer's block like his dick is broken. Yes! <laughs> I don't know what is so... Fight! I love it. <laughs> I want to hear what Chris... Okay, before we get more specific, what did you think? Um, I think I'm like squarely in the middle of both of you. Like, I'm very neutral about this movie. You're I, fucking Switzerland right now, and I've never felt more betrayed. So I'm just enjoying, I'm more enjoying the drama between you two than I'm enjoying either of your opinions. You're a firestarter, I know it. I watched it, I was a little, like, bored while watching it. It was, I didn't, I don't think there's really anything wrong with the movie. And I do find it charming. I think everything is done well in a very theatrical way. It just feels stagey. It feels very theatrical. It feels like everyone's putting on a show um, more so than it feels like a convincing movie. I mean, it's not going for like gritty realism by any means, but you never really forget that you're watching a movie and that people are performing it. Yeah. All the things you're saying are why I love it. It's it's okay. But like, this is a movie that poses as a movie that's about writing and about creating theater and about specifically about like writing a play that says something about love and with the character story of this movie and with the romance in particular that's central to the plot of this movie there's nothing that it has to say about love or about romance. It's these characters, Joseph Fiennes and Gwyneth Paltrow, they're immediately attracted to each other and immediately cosmically in love with each other in a way that has absolutely no drama to it whatsoever. What do you mean it doesn't have drama? Like there's a conflict there. There's really no conflict. They're immediately in love. Well, the conflict is all very plot level, but it's not, um, like there's not emotional, like, they're, yes. They don't have any conflict with each other. No, like, it's the other things keeping them. That's uh, yeah. But that's part of this movie. It's a comedy of errors, which is another Shakespeare play. It's it's a farce. <laughs> it's a taming of the shrew. Really. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of a tale of two cities. Um, <laughs> that's Dickens. <laughs> yeah, okay. that is not it's, Shakespeare. <laughs> you guys, it's a Little Women. <laughs> <laughs> Becky, I would like to remind you of the importance of being earnest. <laughs> Stop just naming titles of things. I feel like we've gone into the woods here. <laughs> Goodbye forever. Oh, I'll, I'll leave. All right, now I love the movie. I'm on Becky's side. Oh, no. 
I don't want to say you shouldn't take this movie seriously, but the movie is a farce. It's supposed to just be fun, and and it takes things from Shakespeare, which is that they're in love, but they can't be together for whatever reasons. And one of them, and there are different you know, things like, oh, he has a wife, or oh, I'm a penniless uh, playwright, and I'm this wealthy lady from this, like, royal... <laughs> I don't know what, they're in the court? Like, I don't know what that yeah. is exactly. There's just all this conflict. I love that they don't end up together, but they're in love. Like, so there is, like, it's not this, like, happy, happy ending. Like, there is some sort of, like, bittersweetness to it that I don't think you're expecting. I think you're expecting them to end up together. Or to die, because it's yeah, Right. <laughs> well, it's a comedy. Yeah. I just think it knows exactly what it is and it wants to be this romantic comedy and it completely succeeds at it i don't think it's trying to be anything more than that and it does everything so well so my fault master shakespeare could do it yesterday do me a speech do me a line parting is such sweet sorrow another little problem what do we do now the show must you know Go on. Juliet does not come on for 20 pages. It will be all right. How will it? I don't know. It's a mystery. Yeah, for me, what I was struck by this time watching it was how not into the romance I was. Like, I like sort of everything else about the movie and find it enjoyable to watch, but I just wasn't at all moved by their relationship or, like, it just it felt very artificial, which I know it's going for. I mean, even Shakespeare's plays, like, Romeo and Juliet is much more about confessing your love for someone and, you know, they just met and it, it's a little bit ridiculous too but you know it's also a tragedy this is kind of like that but without any real payoff i don't know when they're together and and doing like very over the top love dialogue like i get that it's like shakespearean but i just wasn't convinced by the romance or moved by it at all i, I wanted to get back to like the theater and the other characters like i wasn't really rooting for them together they didn't seem like they had anything special or i guess maybe just because the characters are so broad and th- this isn't trying to be like a serious dramatic movie yes, this i don't really buy is them. like a nora efron-esque shakespeare story but amazingly written <laughs> like just like the dialogue i just can't I I think it's cleverly written. Like, I think dialogue... Absolutely, I agree with you, Becky, 100% that dialogue-wise, it's very clever and very fun on that level. But, Chris, I'm right where you're at, where, like, the the dramatic weight of it is kind of just not there at all. And I feel like the version of this movie that would have stuck with me as more resonant and worth revisiting would be, like, the ensemble drama version of this story, like a more... Robert Altman type thing. And that could still be very funny. I was entertained by a whole hell of a lot of this movie. I just, especially in retrospect, looking back at it, I'm like, best picture worthy? Truly, truly, I don't think it's on that level of filmmaking. I think this movie, we talked about how influential Saving Private Ryan was, and I think this movie in its own way is just as influential because it's hard to watch it and not be annoyed by a lot of worst movies that came after it like that were in this style like the kind of like cutesy period like what romance um chocolate uh not all of them are like comedies but like the king's speech a knight's tale i think was influenced by this because i think there's a lot of moments in this that are kind of very 90s filmmaking and almost like guy ritchie-esque the king's speech just because it's like england (laughs) It doesn't have anything 
anything to do just, with it. I don't know. <laughs> Something about the sensibility of it just feels like... I the mean, sense it, and sensibility, really. <laughs> I mean, this kind of is now what's looked at as, like, the Oscar movie. Because, like, the quintessential Oscar movie. And I think Harvey Weinstein is to blame for making, like, chasing that so often and making a lot of, like, pale imitations of this movie that were just... Very mediocre, but would often end up in the Oscar race just because they had that kind of prestige and, like, feel to it. Most of the movies are not even memorable, but, like, all those just kind of Oscar-baity movies are usually about, like, an author or, you know, some notable old person that's dead. Exactly. And, and the Academy voters love nothing more than movies that are about filmmaking or playwriting or novel writing. Yeah, and this is another—this is maybe the beginning of their, like— love affair with themselves of like putting on a show because so many recent winners the artist mm-hmm, have have been about that so i feel a little bit bad like watching this movie with all that baggage but just i don't know there was something so artificial about just the lighting and the sets and the costumes that it just feels like a kind of a high school production a little bit and it is fun and and high school plays can be very fun to watch but it didn't transcend that to me it does it doesn't really like stick i guess <laughs> It sticks for me. I still love it. I just, I don't have a good time watching Save It by Ryan. It's depressing. Mm-hmm. I'm not saying these are bad things. I like depressing movies, but I gotta, like, get in the mood to watch Save It by Ryan. I feel like I can always watch Shakespeare in Love and just always put it on and and listen to this wonderful dialogue and watch these wonderful performances, look at these awesome costumes, and and be happy, and it's not that long and it's just it's just a very enjoyable experience and for me this is far from the worst offender of of winning best picture like i think it is a superb movie i think a lot of it winning does have to do with harvey weinstein i think part of it was back then screeners were like on vhs and i think something like uh, Shakespeare in Love probably played better on TV than mm-hmm. Saving Private Ryan, which you really need to be in a theater to get like the full experience. And I think the violence and the depressing aspect of it probably turned off people. Whereas you watch Shakespeare in Love and you're just kind of delighted. But there are so many worse offenders. <laughs> and I guess the whole debate of like, how could that win over Saving Private Ryan? But it's not like Shakespeare in Love is bad. <laughs> yeah. Like, I feel like you can't even say it's bad. Like, there's so many good things about it, even if you don't like the whole thing, that it makes, it just pisses me off that there's this debate because personally I think Shakespeare in Love is a better movie overall than Saving Private Ryan where it has amazing things about it but there are a few things like the score and like monologues that we talked about that I think do take away from the overall experience of watching it but it would make more sense if Shakespeare in Love was like a piece of shit (laughs) or was like so Oscar baity like Seabiscuit or something winning you know it just pisses me off that this is even like people get so pissed off that it won over Shakespeare over Saving Private Ryan I I don't know I feel like maintaining a beef about that is something that like only very committed film buffs do to this day. I read a lot of movie blogs, like Reddit exactly. Threads, so. but, but what I'm saying is that's a very narrow subset of the 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 culture overall. Mm-hmm. I just don't necessarily think either of these movies are still that much a part of the cultural lexicon, aside from kind of the D-Day sequence of Saving Private Ryan. I think most of the rest of that movie has fallen by the wayside, you know, and, and it was very influential, but kind of in retrospect, I don't think... Either of these movies were, like, pivotal in cinema, like, even to this day. 
Yeah, I think the two big Oscar travesties since this, like in the public perception, are Crash yes. and The King's Thank Speech. You. And Thank I happen you. to yeah. really like Crash. And I happen to like The King's Speech. Yeah, so... <laughs> but, but Social Network should have won. Yeah. Well, and see, I, I very much enjoyed King's Speech. I ended up seeing it twice in theaters. But again, I have not thought of a King's Speech since then. I have not gone back to it in my mind and, like, wanted to revisit it and, like, uncover hidden layers I didn't see. You Like, it was very much an oscar baity type movie, even though I enjoyed it and was glad that it won things. Especially in retrospect, I do think Social Network was a more incisive movie that had more to say about kind of all of us collectively in mm-hmm. the sense that... Uh, we think that Oscars are supposed to reflect a kind of collective cultural sense. Oh, Brokeback should have won. I don't know if you mentioned that it was Brokeback. Oh, was crash. it? Was it that? Yeah. Well, absolutely. It should have been Brokeback. I, I remember being I like Crash very, better. I'm sorry. Very I, angry that year. Crash is a racist movie, but we will keep that for a different episode. <laughs> I disagree. I have a whole thing. This is now the Crash episode of the podcast. <laughs> yeah, the King's Speech year in particular is like the Social Network was a much more influential movie aside from being kind of like, I think, a better crafted movie and just had more to say. In this year, I I mean, I think both of these movies were very influential in different ways. Like, I think Saving Private Ryan probably should win in the sense that, like, the impact it had in cinema was just huge. And this was more of a, like, impact in the Oscars, you know, and, and that kind of thing. But I'm not sure, aside from, you know, the kind of movies that were ripping off Shakespeare in Love or kind of taking that the same approach. I don't think they changed, like, movie going in general, whereas I think Saving Private Ryan definitely changed what kind of movies we actually, like, see in the theater and how violent they are and just the the style and the sort of gritty realism of it. Yeah, and Becky, you linked uh, some articles before we convened to record the podcast, and it kind of Harvey Weinstein changed the game as far as Oscar pitching went as far as like trying to appeal to Oscar voters, but also just through the mainstream press to try to get Oscars. And I think like that was kind of the biggest impact that this movie collectively had was just really about ramping up that whole industry of campaigning for awards. Like before the sex scandal, like in his getting exposed as a serial sexual abuser and a monster of a human being. Like, Harvey Weinstein was kind of very highly regarded as this person who didn't just champion indie film, but very specifically tried to get, like, tried to rack up as many Oscars as he possibly could. One of the things that I feel like is an underlying thing with the controversy of Shakespeare and Love winning over Saving Private Ryan is that Shakespeare and Love is a female movie and Saving Private Ryan is a male movie. And I think part of the anger that was there or the frustration is that this female-ish movie won over this like guy movie. It really feels that way. There are no women basically in Saving Private Ryan and it... And this romantic comedy that's about love and the theater triumphed over this movie. So it's not just the fact that how did it win, but just the reaction afterwards feels like so much meaner and trying to deride this movie that is a a wonderful piece of cinema. I think that also calls up just the fact that like what is considered an Oscar winning movie is usually a drama. And this is an anomaly. Like it's very rare for a lighter comedy to win. I think that's true. And I, I like the fact that a comedy can win, and that a Birdman was comedy, a few years ago. Yeah, and it, but mm-hmm. even that was like has a lot of heavier yeah. material than this does. Um, like Annie Hall is a very famous like comedy yeah. that won, and I would say that's a good comparison to this one, both <laughs> because they're uh, both made by problematic people. But 
<laughs> also, just like the tone of them is very similar. Um, mm. But other than that, they're it's very very rare for anything kind of airy to win. Um, yeah, and it is airy. It's an airy movie. I'm just saying that it excels at it. It excels at everything it set out to do. How nuts is it that Joseph Fiennes was not nominated for this movie? That is completely insane to me. And yeah. also that he's just not a bigger star. Like, I, I, I see him on The Handmaid's Tale now. But he went away for a long time. Like, yeah. before he was... A long time. I was, I was always yeah. like, what? He was a what happened to him kind of How person. How did he not get... I know his brother Rafe is, like, you know, the Fines brother. <laughs> he's the <laughs> finest Fines. <laughs> like, the, you know, the more well-known Fines brother. But, um, but he's perfectly hot in this movie. <laughs> 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 and very and a good actor. Like I don't understand why he's a star. Perfectly hot. He's also an Elizabeth. Yes, he is. I watched Becky, that again. Male actors are more than their delicious bodies, okay? No. We need a He Too movement. Oh, it's every day of life is He Too. Yeah, I, I was kind of blown away by him in this movie just because yes. so like three people got Oscar nominations, two of them got Oscars. He did not, and he's Shakespeare, he's in the title, and I think he's great, and I think he mm-hmm. really carries this movie. Gwyneth Paltrow, I think, is fine. Um, this is such a iconic role for her. It's like hard to like watch it and like. I can't not, picture anyone else. Yeah, not imagine like she won the Oscar for this. Like it just like she might as well be holding the Oscar like throughout the movie in a way, um, <laughs> which isn't a knock on her really. I mean, she's fine, but I, I don't. I don't know that I saw, like, anything that I was like, oh, she needed to win for this. Very good, you know, does the job. But he really, like, just because maybe we don't think about him very much because he's not in that many movies, but he was just, like, I was just, like, kind of glued to him. He was so magnetic in this movie and such a, like, I was like, oh, that's a star in the making. And then, then but it wasn't. (laughs) I know. He wasn't even really in movies before this, you know, like I mean, he was at Elizabeth. No, this was, but like, this was his like breakout movie. And he movie. was fucking Shakespeare. <laughs> and he wasn't in very many movies after it either. Yeah, that I, especially just, not ones that are memorable. He's, he's real creepy on The Handmaid's Tale, so it was nice to go back and see like just gen- just general hot, not creepy Joseph Fiennes. <laughs> this was one year after Leo was not nominated for Titanic, which was also mm. considered a slight. So they were having at the a, time. Yeah, they were having like a thing against like male ingenues, I guess, kind of at the time. Like, young, hot actresses have historically gotten a lot of Oscar attention, and men, not so much. Do you know what the youngest actor to win Best Actor? Do you know how old, who it was, and how old they were? Is Adrian Brody for the, for the Pianist at age 29. Wow. Yeah. And that's the youngest. What? Do you know how young an actress was? I mean, it's like teens. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think it's interesting now because with Timothy Chalamet and Lucas Hedges and Chalamet. a few... Sorry. Chalamet. Chalamet. Whatever. Timothy Champagne and Lucas Hedges. I feel like there's a little bit of a renaissance with young men. A renaissance? Yeah. Renaissance. <laughs> it's funny. I was thinking of Timothy Chalamet and he didn't get nominated this year even though he was in the running mm-hmm. for Beautiful Boy. That... They're starting to embrace that now, finally, but they were not at the time. And I I think Josephine didn't even go to the Oscars this year, uh, which is why it's weird that he's kind of like left out. Like you remember Gwyneth, you remember Harvey Weinstein, you remember Judi Dench. And yet, like Shakespeare himself is kind of like not remembered as because he's as a romantic lead. Um, I mean, he has plenty of funny moments, but like even like Jeffrey Rush has all like the one-liners, things like that, and the cold torture. 
Yeah, I don't know why you're focusing on that. I just, I I love so many lines of this movie. I love the line that Colin Firth says, you are allowed to show your pleasure <laughs> when he says that you have to marry me. You are allowed. Yeah. Me, uh, me and my husband say that a lot to each other. I like the, the, the line when he's on the medieval psychiatrist's couch. Uh, Nothing comes. It's like trying to pick a lock with a red herring. <laughs> or how about when Shakespeare's going off about whatever and jeffrey rushes we don't have time talk prose <laughs> i feel like only geeks get this shit and yeah. i love it you're right like the script is very very clever and would almost be more enjoyable to just read than to watch mm-hmm. or equally enjoyable and the cast i think is pretty uniformly great like i love imelda staunton as the nurse i had to look up who she was because i couldn't like i couldn't see her face or yes. something yes <laughs> she has that whole headdress thing ben affleck's really good in this yeah that's Incorrect. I don't know if he's really good, but incorrect about that. He feels anachronistic, but in a way, I don't know. It kind of works. He comes in. What is my role? Wait, what is the play and what is my part? All right, I will play that. (laughs) Because it's the title. Um, Colin Firth and Rupert Everett, who I usually don't like, is a louche in this movie, and I enjoy the hell out of him. Are you trying to use the word louche in every podcast episode? I am. This is now the When We Were Louche podcast. (laughs) We're sponsored by the Louche Corporation, the official (laughs) corporation of Hollywood. (laughs) Um, I'm going to go out on a limb and say Judy Dench is a pretty great actress. (laughs) She is a great actress, but she's... Honestly, the most impression she makes in this movie is via makeup and costumes. I I disagree. I think she's great. I think... A very worthy sum on a very worthy question. Can a play show us the very truth and nature of love? I bear witness to the wager and will be the judge of it as occasion arises. I've seen nothing to settle it yet. Are no more fireworks? They will be soothing after the excitements of Lady Viola's audience. Have her then, but you're a lordly fool. She's been plucked since I saw her last, and not by you. Takes a woman to know it. I think she grounds, like, to me, whatever weight this movie has is from her. The line that Becky uses her intro, the one about a woman in a man's world, was one of the few lines that made me kind of, like, stop and think and be and like kind of placed this in a historical context rather than just being whimsical and I I, I would gladly watch like the entire Judy Dench Elizabeth movie <laughs> which but they should have made the thing is they give all of that work to her and that character is not written extensively enough and woven into enough of the movie for me to fully buy that. Because I agree with you, like, those are the few moments when this is grounded in any kind of sense of history or sense of Shakespeare accomplishing something more than being entertaining in writing the thing that he has to be writing throughout the plot of this movie. But I just don't think they give enough time or weight to her character to have that feel like something that's, like, organically growing alongside it. It's kind of like she's the deus ex machina, like, queen who comes in to be like, okay, this movie has weight now. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of like that because it's such a small role and the fact that she makes such an impression. I think when you think of this movie, like, she might be one of the first things you think about, which is rare for some th- someone who's on screen so little and just the fact that she can come in and be so commanding with so little screen time. She's um, not even like moving. She's just in a chair. Yeah. That's a great performance and I think maybe she won and was because of the Harvey Weinstein thing but she still does a great job. 
Yeah, well, I mean, honestly, like, looking at the rest of the actresses from that year, um, it's just, like, she's by far, like, the most iconic and memorable character, even though mm-hmm. her role was so much smaller than everyone else's. The person who won with the least screen time was the woman in Network. Yeah. Beatrice Strait. She was in five minutes of Network. And Judy Dench was in six minutes of Shakespeare in Love. Yeah, I rewatched Elizabeth because I watched all these Best Picture nominees. <laughs> so why not? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I will say, like, that's probably the movie for Seth, like, that you were looking for. It's much more grounded and... Absolutely. And I didn't see Elizabeth until much, much later. Um, but yeah, I still think that's so exquisitely done. And I also think that that marked the beginning of everyone not giving Kate Blanchett her appropriate due. <laughs> she got an Oscar? She got Eventually. two Oscars. It took them long enough, though. <laughs> yeah, I think, like... Performance-wise, she's better in this, in this in this year. She was a newbie then. Yeah, she was. Uh, yeah, I'd never That's heard true. of her. So this Academy of Three is about to revote on the uh, 1999 Oscars: Shakespeare in Love or Saving Private Ryan. Uh, Let's have Seth go first, since I think we know what he's going to say. I would definitely say Saving Private Ryan. What about you? I'm gonna let you go first. <laughs> But I don't have an answer yet. <laughs> Ooh, I will go with Saving Private Ryan too. Where would you go with? Is it is it unanimous? Because I watched Saving Private Ryan, and I did have the thought of just how much epic work went into it. I would say Saving Private Ryan because I think Shakespeare in Love is still a great movie and is worthy of Best Picture. But I think just generally more work went into Saving Private Ryan. It's a bigger movie. Crash or... No, I'm just <laughs> Are and you playing me off? <laughs> and the orchestra playing you off. With the Gone with the Wind I forgot to thank my publicist. Don't thank Harvey Weinstein. I'm just so in love with my brother right now. That was a deep cut from Angelina Jolie. Man. And I knew that because we're the same person. And And that's all the Oscar gold we have time for on the When We Were Young podcast on our next episode. We'll be looking back at the alternative music of 1994, which saw the debuts and breakthrough albums of many, many artists that we still know and love today, including Green Day, The Offspring, Oasis, Nine Inch Nails, Weezer, Lisa Loeb. There should be a question mark on her name. (laughs) There was. But we can stay with you no longer. The When We Were Young podcast is a production of the MFP Studio Studio in Los Angeles, California. If you've enjoyed this, please subscribe to us on iTunes and leave us a review of five stars or more. And you can follow us on all the social medias. I have been Seth. I'm Ethel, the pirate's daughter. Chris. I was going to be Ethel, the pirate's daughter. (laughs) (laughs) I told you we're the same person. That's perfect. Tonight's show was full of surprises, shocks, things we hoped for and things that we weren't sure were going to happen. But the one thing we can always say about the movies is that it is a language that is, as we saw tonight, universal. So for all of you around the world who are watching us tonight, we love that you love what we do. We'll keep on doing what we do. And if you want to do it too, well then, like that young lady who won the documentary Oscar, you come on over or stay where you are and honey, make those movies and we'll watch them. Good night. (laughs) 